Um, and I'm trusting God that he's not going to come to regret that offer. Um, and, and I actually wrote this talk about six months or so ago because I wanted to structure my, my thinking on the topic. And then for those of you that were here two weeks ago, you'd have seen Laura Lee Lovering, uh, one of our Beyonders, a remarkable lady that has been called by God as an environmentalist to go out to Peru and be part of God's plan to steward his creation out there. And, and as she was talking and sharing, she challenged us as a church on, on what we think and what we do around this topic of climate change. And so my plan for today is to really build on some of, some of what she started us thinking about, um, because it's a big question. You know, someone said that climate change is the biggest threat to our existence in our short history on Earth. And we know what everyone else thinks. We know what Greta thinks. We know what Donald Trump thinks. But what does God think? And so today, what I'd like to do is basically explore this question with you. What do we think God thinks about climate change? How does he feel? Um, but before I get into that, three points of clarification. I'm not going to address the question of whether climate change is real or not. I think for the vast majority of us, that debate is well and truly over. Secondly, I'm not going to tell you what I think you should do. That is, that's not for me to say. I simply want to explore this question, what do we think God feels? How does he feel about climate change? And then thirdly, really importantly, I'm not standing here as a shining example of environmental sensitivity. I've spent my entire life as, as a working class man in, sorry, middle class man in the UK. And so my carbon footprint compared with the majority of this world is, is embarrassing. Um, but although you know, my family and I have, have started to make some changes to our lifestyle, there is, there is still more that we could do. But the good news is we're not here today to compare carbon footprints. Um, so the plan, the plan for today is, um, you will know that the Bible is a remarkable book that spans time. It starts out at the dawn of time, through to the ancient past, the present day, and then out to the future for eternity. And what I'd like to do is to take this broad sweep of time and ask ourselves this question, what does it tell us about how God feels about climate change? So specifically, I want to look at three sections, the past, the present, and the future, with this question in mind. So let's start in the past. The obvious place for us to start is Genesis 1, um, the first book of the Bible that tells us about creation of this world. And chapter 1 tells us about how God created this earth in which we inhabit. The land, the seas, the skies, the stars, the plants, the trees, the animals. How he did that is not relevant for our conversation today. Why he did it is. And, and we get the answer to that in verses 26 to 28. And I'm, I'm sure these are verses that you're familiar with. Even those of us that started reading a Bible in a year and got only as far as January the 1st will be familiar <laughs> with these verses. And it goes like this. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, 
He created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky and all the animals that scurry along the ground. In other words, God creates the earth and he gives it over to us freely. It's a gift. He's giving it to us and he says, look after it, steward it, reign over it, govern it. And what an incredible gift. You know, creation is so staggeringly abundant and varied that one Scottish poet said God's creation is gloriously wasteful. Take um, autumn leaves, for example, often so rich that they take us by surprise each year. Have you ever noticed every year, without fail, someone will say, aren't the autumn colours amazing this year? And I'm not sure they necessarily are. I just think we can't help but wonder anew at their beauty. But what I find amazing about autumn colours is the abundance of it. All across the world, trees are turning shades of orange, of yellow and red. And then at the end of the season, it all just drops to the ground and rots away, only to do it again the next year. Thousands of tiny little pieces of art all hanging from every tree. Some trees won't even be seen by mankind, but still the trees display his glory. Hoarfrost is another one. Cold, humid nights. Crystals can cover the landscape, all tiny little crystals of water, all totally unique, covering the landscape like little jewels. And then when the day warms up, it all just disappears. Morning dew, the same. Beautiful, totally spherical droplets of water caught in between moss and leaves, watering the flora, reflecting the light. And then the day warms up, and it goes again. Birdsong. Birdsight is not too loud, not too quiet. Then consider the trillions of uninhabited forest across the world, all resounding with the sound of birdsong in the early morning, but with no one to hear it. It is a gift of such extravagance. It's only God that could conceive of it. Annie Dillard, um, an American writer and poet, said that the world is fairly studied and strewn with pennies cast broadside by a generous hand. Such, I mean, I love that phrase. It is just so beautiful. It just, you can imagine God creating the world and just throwing out beauty with just reckless generosity. And, and I think most of us have a sense that creation is a gift from God, and we sense that in how we respond when we see something that is beautiful. It evokes emotions in us of, of joy, of wonder, of gratitude. Like when you see a, a snow-capped mountain or, or clear turquoise seas. It evokes emotions in us and we get that sense that it's not a mere accident. This is a gift from God. Now, now some people may argue that those emotions that we get are nothing more than a series of chemical reactions in our brain. Some kind of native survival instinct that helps us find food and escape predators and thrive. But personally, I find those explanations wholly inadequate. There is a transcendence about creation. We sense that it is a gift from our creator. Let, let me give you an example of what I mean by that. Um, a few years ago, my wife celebrated a, a significant birthday. And, and so I organized a trip for us out to the Amalfi Coast in, in Italy. And, um, it was a little bit stressful getting there. We had to get up early on the Friday morning and fly out from 
Gatwick, of all places, and we missed our junction on the M25. We nearly got there too late. It was all a bit stressful. We get to Naples. Naples is a busy, dusty, noisy city. Getting out of the city wasn't much fun. And then you have to drive up over these windy roads, over some mountains and down the other side. As we got up into the mountains, it was covered in cloud. Couldn't see a thing. It was cold. And, but then as we descended down the other side of the mountains, it all began to clear. And we got to the place we were staying, and it was, a, it was an old monastery. And we approached the, the building from the back. And as we went in, this gentleman gave us this glass of water, cold water, and it was scented with, with lemons and herbs from the garden. And then he took us out onto this balcony, and we were greeted with this view that just, just totally threw me. It was just incredible. The gardens were a mixture of lemon groves and herbs and spring flowers. And then the cliff just dropped away and there was the sea beyond with the sun shining down on it. All I could think about was this must be what it's like to come home to Eden. But an Eden that was far more glorious than I could have imagined. And it was too much. I started to well up. And, and I had to turn away and go inside because I thought this guy's not going to understand why I'm blubbing. Now, I, I am of sane mind. I don't... <laughs> I was, I was kind of hoping for an amen from someone on that one, but anyone? Millie? Amen, thank you. Um, I don't normally cry at gardens, but my heart, my heart was responding to the extravagant gift from our Heavenly Father. I've got no other explanation for, for how I responded. So if... If when we look to the past, we think God has gifted us with this glorious gift, how do we think he feels about things like climate change? Well, let me ask you the question, how, how would you feel? Consider this scenario for me. You, you want to bless a dear friend of yours, maybe a child of yours, and so you decide to, to paint them a picture. And so you spend seven whole days pouring your heart and your soul and all your creativity into this painting. It is an expression of who you are. It's an, a reflection of your character and how you feel about this person. And when you finish painting after seven days, you step back and say to yourself, that is good. You take it to this, this friend or this child of yours and you present it to them and they are overjoyed because it's beautiful. It's just beyond what they could have imagined. And they hang it on the wall in prime position in their hallway as you go in through their front door. And then a few months later, you go back to visit. And as you walk in, you notice that the picture's not there. And then you look and you see that it is, it's fallen to the ground. It's damaged, it's scuffed, and it's lying in amongst all other discarded items. How would you feel? Sad? Rejected? Angry? Maybe. So that's the past. What about the present? Um, now, I'm sure most of you will recognize and agree with me that the impacts of climate change are becoming more and more obvious year on year. I think just this last June was declared the hottest June across the globe on record. Seven of the hottest 10 temperatures in the UK have been recorded in the last 20 years. But here's the thing about climate change. Not everyone is affected equally. And for those of us in the UK, 
we're not really seeing much of an impact at the moment. And the impacts that we are seeing, we largely have the means to manage. Let me give you some examples from my own, from my own life. Last summer, um, you'll remember, was, it was long, hot, dry summer. And the implications for me were, firstly, I struggled to sleep at night, so I had to get a fan out of our loft. I had to repair it because my son had stepped on it the year before, just so that we could get some air circulating in the room to sleep at night. The second issue, we were worried that we would lose some of the plants in our back garden because of the hosepipe ban. And, and the third issue, because I am strawberry blonde and fair-skinned, we spent quite a bit of money on suntan lotion. Now, I can sense the judgment in the room. I can sense you feeling, big deal, Rich. And you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Whilst many of us in the UK are thinking we might have to buy an air conditioning unit if these summers persist. In other parts of the world, when they experience long, hot, dry summers, people starve. Take Zimbabwe, for example. Um, last year, their grain production fell by 43%. Now, in a country where over half the population live in extreme poverty on less than $2 a day, when crops fail and prices rise, people starve. With an increase in extreme weather patterns, we're also seeing much wetter winters. The implications for me, I need to clear the gutters out on my roof, and occasionally one of my son's rugby matches is cancelled because of a flooded pitch. But in other parts of the world, it's different. Pakistan last year experienced serious flooding. 33 million homes were affected, a million houses were destroyed, and 1,700 people lost their lives. Yes, we do get flooding in the UK, but we largely have the means to manage it. If you carry along the Thames from Reading towards Wind Windsor and Eton, I don't really know which direction it is, but if you carry along the Thames, you'll get to, from Reading to Windsor and Eton. A few years ago, the government spent 330 million on a flood defense system around Windsor and Eton to protect the houses and, and, and um, businesses in that area. So yes, we do get flooding, and yes, our insurance premiums may go up, our taxes may rise, but it's unlikely that anyone's going to die in the UK. Climate change does not affect everyone equally, and there is a word for this, it's called injustice. It's not fair. And we know how God feels about injustice. We have a God who cares deeply for those that have the least. And if we take anything from the Bible about God's character, there's two things that always stand out. He is loving and he is just. He hates injustice. It has no place in his kingdom. Deuteronomy 32.4 says, He is the rock. His ways are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just he is. And if this isn't bad enough, there's a bit of a sting in the tail. And that's that those that are most affected and have the least are least responsible for the current situation. And those that are least affected are most responsible. There is a clear correlation between the wealth of a country and its carbon footprint and the carbon footprint of the, of the people of that country. 
The wealthier you are, the more you travel, whether that be land or by air. The more we buy from overseas, whether that's clothes or fruit and veg, the more red meat we eat. Uh, the bigger homes we have to heat, the more buildings we have to cool. I could go on. Um, I've got two charts for you, which I'm hoping will show up. The darker the color there, the darker the red, the bigger the carbon footprint, the bigger the carbon emissions per capita per person. And you will see North America, Europe, China, Australia, the developed world. And now the second chart, this is showing you the countries that are most susceptible to the impacts of climate change. And it's a very, very different picture. If you want to hear one thing from my talk today, it is this, climate change is racist. It's the single biggest issue of injustice this world has ever seen. And on this current traje trajectory, it will stand out in history as an injustice that dwarfs the other injustices of slavery, colonialism, and empire. And so this present day situation is really a matter of injustice. Those that have the least suffer the most. And unfortunately, they are suffering largely because of the consumerism and materialism of the developed world. That is a really uncomfortable truth. The Bible would call that idolatry. And so the present situation is a matter of injustice fueled by idolatry. So that's the past, the present. What about the future? So this is, um, this is a big topic, and I was unsure as to whether I should go here because it, it really requires a little bit more unpacking than I'm going to do now. Um, it's a big question, and knowing what our future holds is a little bit unclear. It's a bit like looking into a fog, and so we need to tread carefully. But the reason why I wanted to, to cover this section is because there's a number of um, misunderstandings about our ultimate destination, which are really important when we think about climate change. Um, I think if we were to do a poll of this room and ask the question, what does our future hold? The word heaven would probably figure quite prominently in people's responses. And, and it's not that that's wrong, it's just that we need to be a bit careful about what we mean by that. Because the phrase, go to heaven when you die, is a very common phrase, both inside the church and outside the church. And often what people think about that is that it means our ultimate destination is, is somewhere away from this earth. It's a non-physical place where our souls go. And it evokes images of us floating up into the clouds where we will sit munching on grapes, playing harps, singing Amazing Grace, forevermore. It makes us think of a non-physical eternity away from this world. And, and the problem with that is it's just a few small steps away from thinking that this world is evil and that when Jesus returns, this world is going to be destroyed and a few of us lucky ones are going to float away somewhere else forevermore. And that thinking, the, the theologian N.T. Wright would describe as seriously misleading and missing the whole point. And that thinking actually is rooted more in Greek philosophy, the suggestion that our ultimate destination 
is some disembodied bliss is from Plato and not from Jesus. But we, as a culture, have grown up with Plato, whether we read it or not, and I certainly don't. And, and the Greek philosophers would tell you that, that our spirits are good and matter is bad. And so the heaven that we so desperately need is to escape this physical world, escape the bodies that we're trapped in and this, this physical earth. But that's not what the Bible tells us of our ultimate destination. In fact, the Bible, there's nowhere in the Bible that it talks about going to heaven when you die. And the Bible says very little about where we go immediately after we die. It doesn't tell us much about where those are that have already passed away. But what it does have an awful lot to say about is the great resurrection for which Jesus was the first. A resurrection in which we will have new bodies and we will be given the task of ruling over the restored creation just as he originally intended us to. And so what awaits us, our ultimate destination, is not an evacuation, it's a restoration. It's a great healing of everything, of us, our hearts, our minds, our souls, our bodies, our societies, our communities, and creation. And it takes place here on earth. And so the end game isn't that we get whisked away, it's that Jesus returns and transforms it and us with it. Uh, N.T. Wright, to quote him here, he says, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. After all, that is what the Lord's Prayer is about. He's referring there to the part of the Lord's Prayer that says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven i.e. we want God's reign, his will to come to earth. And so the end game, the ultimate destination, is a great redemption of creation, not destruction. Um, more importantly, what does the Bible say? As much as I love N.T. Wright, I've given you three verses, hopefully on this slide, from three different voices in the New Testament. The first is from the, the book of Revelation, the prophetic vision that, that John had. And in this vision, this is from chapter 21 of Revelation, John is describing what he sees happening when Jesus returns. He's describing a new heaven and a new earth and how the earth is being renewed by the coming of heaven down to earth. And so they're one of the same place. And in verse 5, John says, the, the voice on the throne, Jesus saying, Behold, I'm making all things new. And notice the order of the words there. He doesn't say all things new. What does he say? He, does, he says all things new, not all new things. I.e., it's not created new, it's a restoration of what was there. And then we have Peter in the book of Acts preaching in the temple. And again, Peter is describing the second coming. And he uses the phrase, so he's basically saying Jesus is currently in heaven, but he will return. And he describes that, what will happen when Jesus returns as the final restoration 
of all things. And then finally, in the book of Matthew, from the, the mouth of Jesus, uh, the disciples have just asked Jesus, they're basically asking, what, what's going to happen to us? We've given up everything. What, what does it mean? And Jesus is, is basically saying, just wait till I return and, and you will be rewarded effectively. And the phrase he uses to describe what will happen, he's describing effectively the ultimate completion of his mission. And he describes it as the renewal of all things. And that word renewal comes from, two, from a Greek word which has two root words. One which means paling, which means again. And the other word genesia, which means beginning. And so Jesus is describing his mission as taking us back to the beginning, back to Eden, back to the time before everything went wrong, before the world was subject to decay. And that, in many ways, is the message of the gospel. Not that Jesus is, is going to return and take us away somewhere else. No, it's Jesus is Lord. Everything has changed. His kingdom is coming. And one day his kingdom will be here in full and all things will be made new. Everything will be put right, including creation. And what Jesus is doing there is really subtly brilliant. He's taking us back to Genesis and, and back to chapter one of Genesis where we started. And he's reminding us that he created this world and he pronounced it good. He created us and pronounced us very good. Yes, we've gone off piste for sure, but he's not, he's not got it wrong. He's not changing his plan. He's not suddenly worked out that he, he made a mistake. No, he's restoring it. He's restoring that original plan. Um, the author Brian Zand, a little bit controversial in places, but the way he describes this is brilliant. He says, Jesus is not a heavenly conductor handing out tickets to heaven. Jesus is the carpenter who repairs, renovates, and restores God, God's good world. The divine vision and original intention for human society is not to be abandoned, but saved. So it does raise the question, what does that mean for us today? Do we, do we simply sit back and wait for Jesus to return and make all things new? To quote Paul, by no means. We are God's chosen agents on earth. We are the means or the vessels through which his kingdom can come. And I don't believe there's anything in scripture that suggests creation should be treated any differently from anything else that God wants to restore, whether that be our lives, our hearts, minds, souls, communities, whatever. There's um, a Walt Whitman poem you might be familiar with, O Me, O Life, and at the end of the poem, there's a beautiful phrase where it, he says, the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse. God's powerful play goes on. God's kingdom is coming. His play of restoration is happening and we get to contribute a part. We get to contribute a verse. That is an amazing honor and privilege that he chooses to partner with us. So just to be clear, when it comes to the future, um, climate change, I firmly believe, is not part of God's plan for the future. And, and actually, I think it's entirely the opposite. Climate change is one of the many horrific and ugly consequences 
of the sin that pulses through all of us. So, to conclude, um, I posed the question at the beginning, what do we think God feels? Is he, is he concerned by climate change? Does he care? Well, you've probably sensed, I believe the answer to that question is an emphatic yes, he does care. But all I would ask of you is that you, you consider the question for yourselves. I, I expect that God is deeply saddened by our treatment of the glorious gift that he has given us. We have not cared for creation well. I expect God is pretty, probably angry at the injustice he sees, and he would call us to show mercy to those most affected. And, and I expect he's eager for us to partner with him in his great plan to make all things new. But one, one kind of final thought for you. Um, I often find it a little frustrating that the church is recognized usually for things that we're against as opposed to the things that we're for. Wouldn't it be great if we were recognized as a group of people that took great care for God's creation? So much so that when people inquire, why is it? Why, why is it you care so much about creation? Well, we can say, because we want to cherish the amazing gift that our Heavenly Father has given us. And because we are deeply saddened by the amount of injustice we see in this world as a result of climate change. And we feel a responsibility, because we, we, have bit, we are partly responsible. And we have a great hope that his kingdom is coming, and we get to play our part in that. God's powerful play goes on, and we get to contribute a verse. Amen.